Hey, I'm Jeff Moss, also known as the Dark Tangent, the founder and creator of Black Hat and the DEF CON hacking conferences, and I'm here with Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 287 for August 29th, 2022, and it is the big, super fun, fabulous interview with Jeff Moss, aka The Dark Tangent, the CEO and founder of DEF CON, which just had its 30th anniversary, just had its 30th meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, August 11th through 14th. It's in Vegas every year. It's part of what we lovingly refer to as Hacker Summer Camp because there's actually three different hacker conferences that all kind of collaborate together and and make sure that they're always coordinated every year for the same same week in, in Las Vegas. This was my my second time attending. I'm and after having been, I'm really bummed that I missed it all, but uh, it actually kind of worked out well coming in after COVID. Last year was kind of a DEF CON light. DEF CON 29 was uh, fewer people in attendance, so it was actually kind of nice to kind of experience it without the crowds. Uh, this year, there's a lot of people back there, like 25,000 people, I think, attended this year, which is not quite back up to what it was pre-COVID. Uh, but there was still a virtual el element this year, too, so maybe some people just stayed home. We did have to all wear masks while we were there, which is uh, which is a good thing. Uh, I actually managed to come home without getting COVID, and I think a lot of the people did too, actually. They're actually keeping track of that. They're actually having people, uh, if they contract COVID, they want to know about it so they can actually uh, find out how well they <laughs> the, uh, the safety measures worked. What a concept, right? Data-driven decision-making. So I personally had a great DEF CON. I talked a little bit about it last week, but I made a super cool indie badge, making your own. You know, the badges that come at DEF CON are these crazy, amazing, hackable computers in a badge uh, that do all sorts of really cool stuff. Um, but uh, there are people, because badge life, ha like hashtag badge life is a thing at this particular conference. And so people make their own badges. And laughed, after I went last year, I'd, I wanted to do something like that this year. And hooked up with the, the folks at hackerboxes.com and we created the Amulet of Entropy, which was very popular. If you want to go to amuletofentropy.com, you can find out all about it. There are still a few left. If you if you missed one, I think there might be still some online, but grab them quick if you want them because they're about gone and they will not be replaced. Now, I personally have a collection of five of them. Uh, I will probably save one of those. So I've got four of these that I may find some way to release in some future promotion or something. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them. Uh, but anyway, the best way to go right now is just to go to hackerboxes.com and look for uh, package number 80. And then I also gave a talk at the Crypto and Privacy Village called Capturing Chaos, Harvesting Environmental Entropy. And I used the badge for the research. So those things went hand in hand. That was a lot of fun. So I also interviewed Jeff last time, and uh, I dedicated uh, the podcast right before that to kind of my first experiences at DEF CON and trying to explain hackers and hacking to muggles, to to people that aren't in, the, in that society. And so if you're interested, go back and check out those. There will be links in the show notes to uh, just about everything that I make reference to, including some of the stuff in the interview. So be sure to check the notes uh, if you want to find out more. All right, so let's set up this interview. There's a few things I'll, he mentions that I want to draw your attention to that you probably have no reference for. And, and I'll actually cover some of them after the interview as well. But leading into this, he has a passing reference to LOD versus MOD. And this was the Great Hacker War. And LOD was Legion of Doom, and MOD was the Masters of Deception. And these were hacker groups back in the 90s, I believe. 
And now the Wikipedia page on this, if you look it up, says there wasn't much of a war, just kind of some back and forth. I wasn't there. I don't know. It sounds like Jeff was. He actually added a little bit of color to that that was not covered in the Wikipedia article. So you'll learn about that today. Jeff also refers to 2600, uh, and his reference is to an organization that was and still is uh, a hacker organization. Uh, They have a magazine called 2600 that's one of the most famous ones in the hacker realm, and they are known for several things, and the, the origin of the name 2600 is very interesting, and I will cover that after the interview. Jeff will mention several people by their hacker handles. This is something that's very common at DEF CON uh, and in hacker circles in general. Uh, for one thing, people in this community like their privacy. So, you know, the, you don't necessarily want to associate yourself with your regular, you know, legal name. But also, hacker handles are more unique than our given names. There's a lot of Mikes and Daves and Susans and stuff out there. So it's actually more efficient in a lot of times to just refer to people by their handles. So anyway, you'll, you'll notice that he'll directly refer to several people just by their hacker handles, and that's why. One last thing, here's your trigger warning. There are a few swear words in this interview, and I think they are perfectly appropriate, so I did not remove them. But if that is something that bothers you, just know that there will be a couple uh, couple F-bombs and a couple other words in here that are curse words. So with that as an introduction, let's get to my talk with Jeff Moss. All right, Jeff, thanks again for doing this. So let's go all the way back. Let's go back to DEF CON 1. Tell me, how, how did that happen? How did that come together? Okay, so I'll tell you the story as I remember it 30 years later. <laughs> right. So back in the day, this was early internet days. So it was still all about trying to figure out how to connect your computer to a TCP IP network. Yeah. And uh, I think back then, you know, operating systems didn't have TCP IP built in, so you had to run this, this other uh, DOS software from this one company in Oregon. And... I was on all these bulletin boards. I ran a bulletin board. It was very popular. I ran a bulletin board since uh, high school. And the network was going away. And That was PlatinumNet, yeah? Yeah, you remember PlatinumNet. So, so I had about 12 of these FIDO-compatible networks. Right? FIDO was the network, but people yeah. took FIDO protocol and they built their own networks. And, and I was this U.S. hub for a lot of them. Cybercrime was, a, was one of the biggest. It had like, I think CCI had 100... 200 nodes around the world. And the most interesting ones, they had some in Russia. And mm-hmm. so you would, as a kid, you're hearing people who, who've learned English in Russia talking. And it's just, wow, this is a global community, right? Yeah. You're hearing about people in Texas talking about what's going on down there. You know, you're hearing about weather, life, music, whatever, all around the world. And you're like sitting in your parents' home and you're not old enough to drive and you can't vote, but you're part of this, right. you know, thing. Global community. And um, I had watched enough people get busted for uh, toll fraud, for phone, phone freaking, to know that if I was going to do something like running a bulletin board that continuously was calling out, you're not going to commit toll fraud from your home phone number. Hmm. So I worked and I paid my phone bill, which was my biggest expense. Okay. But because of that, I was a very stable node for all these networks, all these hacking networks. And so I ended up being like the North America clearinghouse for all of these networks. So when one of them, PlatinumNet, was going away, um, we were the biggest gateway aggregator in, in, for the U.S. So I'm talking to a guy who's running uh, PlatinumNet in Canada, really friendly guy, and he's like, oh, my dad's going to take a job overseas, and uh, we're going to have to move. So let's throw a party for the going away of PlatinumNet. And, uh, but you're the biggest, all you're the users are in America, so let's figure it out. 
And we talked to her like, well, we can't do it in Canada because if everybody's in the U.S. and we're yeah. all young, it's, you know, <laughs> right. it's going to be pretty hard. So then we were thinking, well, who do we invite? Well, let's invite the other people from the other networks that I'm on because they're all kind of similar. They're yeah, just, yeah. just different. And he's like, oh, that's a good idea. And then he disappeared. And you thought, was it? Yeah, you said on the documentary you've never heard from the guy again. Is that, is that still true I, to yeah, this day? And by, by bringing that up in the documentary, I'd hoped the <laughs> right. word... I mean, I've reconnected over the years with people long since gone that I, I just saw at Black Hat, my, one of my arch nemesis that was attacking me. Who's your arch nemesis? Well, I don't have, he's not my arch nemesis anymore. It hasn't been for a while. But in the early hacking days, this guy from the MOD, remember the LOD versus MOD wars? Yeah, okay. Over a girl, right, of course, there was this hacking kind of battle. And, um, and then he's the reason why I don't have DEFCON.com because really? he registered it out from underneath <laughs> me. Did so I that. registered, I got, from, I got from the girl, his domain. <laughs> and so then we had each other's domain, sort of. Oh, that's fine. And, but anyway, so, so yeah, you come across people from the old days, but not everybody. And so once he disappeared and the ball was in my lap, I decided I'm going to do something bigger. And so then I was on the Pound Hack, Pound Freak on IRC and uh, on Usenet because I had access to, I think, a university system so mm. I could get online. And why not invite them, right? And next thing you know, it's just, well, if we're doing that, why don't we send fax, as fax was big back then, let's do fax invites. Now, you know, everybody reads 2600. And I think back then, either if not the first DEF CON, but by the third or fourth, there's another magazine called Blacklisted 411 mm. out of California, lasted for a bunch of years before it went away. So our pet strategy was invite everybody who's interested in this stuff. And, uh, and I remember we would invite lawyers and activists and artists and musicians. And we just, we didn't know what to make of it. So we just invited everybody. And the idea was, is like sort of this utopian era when nobody really knew what the internet was capable of. We felt we're at the beginning of yeah. something new. Yeah. And um, the other hacking conferences at the time were invite only. There was like SummerCon that was invite only. That was a big one. And PumpCon had just started, and they were going to be invite-only. And SummerCon was, uh, I mean, uh, HoHoCon was invite-only. So I wanted to be not invite-only. I wanted to invite everybody. And that turned out to be the winning formula, I think. Mm. At that time, there's a group of people that could not participate in this community. And I gave them a way to participate. And I'd like to say that was my master plan, but <laughs> you know, it was really just a reaction of being different. I didn't want to be invite-only. And... Um, most of the cons are on the East Coast or the South, and there hadn't been anything much on the West Coast. So I wanted to be on the West Coast, and I had been to a Ho-Ho con where after hours there was nothing to do. Mm. And they, people went crazy, like garbage cans on fire in the hotel room. I mean, just all kinds of craziness. And I was like, I need things to distract people, or <laughs> it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> so 24-hour cities, what do we got? We got New York, Las Vegas. I don't know about San Francisco if that's 24 hours. And so was, the decision sort of made itself. Plus, I was in Seattle, Las Vegas, War Games, character was from Seattle. First location they nuke is Las Vegas. I mean, we're named DEFCON. I mean, it just all lined up. Has any other city tried to woo you away for all these years? And have you ever thought about moving? I thought about moving, but, but there's not that many locations yeah, as you, you can go to. Yeah, I mean, you, it, the interesting thing is we're a lot of micro communities inside communities. And... Um, there's some places with enormous convention floors, but not a lot of air walls. And mm. we need air walls. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. 
so you can sort of do a map of how big your conference is, what the convention facilities are, how much air wall space, and you just narrow it down to like a handful of cities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, thinking back to the first conference, how many how many things, how many elements of that first era like survive today? And then what what has maybe gone by the wayside? Like like Alexis Park, I'm sure is one of them. What are the things that have maybe gone by the wayside that you miss? Every few years, I go back and I look at the DEFCON One talks. I'm like, okay, how much have things changed? Mm-hmm. And things have not really changed. We had uh, Dr. Mark Ludwig from the big black book of computer viruses, who was like, is very controversial. He's a guy who writes viruses, mm. a virus studies them. And he released this one virus that would spread, but what it would do is it would encrypt your floppy disks. So kind of like ransomware, but you put in the password yourself. So mm. since protecting your data was hard with floppy disks, the virus, made it easy for you. You just used your floppy disks as normal and they just all end up encrypted with your password. Hmm. And then if you wanted to, you put in your password, unlock it. But the idea was using a virus for good. And so here we are, I don't know, 30 years later and ransomware is a big deal, but I mean, with DEF CON 1, there was already a virus huh. that was doing it for good. Right. What we didn't have was all the payment infrastructure, right? That was missing. Right. Dead Attic did this talk on how the future was going to change radically because we're going to be connected online all the time. Yeah. Cable modems, DSL, that's coming. And what happens when your computer's always connected? Like, then a bad guy can attack you always. Right. And so, yeah, that's, it's kind of like phones now. When you're on the phone or you're off the phone, but now phones are always connected because data is essentially free. So people aren't, you know, they don't right. put their phone into offline mode most of the day. It's just always on. Right. So the big one, I think, was uh, Dan from Sun Microsystems. He, everybody wanted to be Dan. He was literally a hacking rock star, complete with the hair, the girls, everything. I mean, the look. And uh, he was doing the job everybody wanted. He was protecting big companies, mm-hmm. but he looked like them, he spoke like them, had, you know, and Sun was the internet in those early days, right? Yeah. So he was saying it's getting so hard protecting all these systems, um, you can't do it anymore. It takes up too much time. So he's starting to write tools and he's automating and he's thinking of creating a security scanner that would scan Sun to tell him what the vulnerabilities were. He's thinking maybe he'll call it something like Satan, security, you know, testing. And, and that got him, uh, he made it, he released it, and it got him on the front page of Time Magazine the next year. Wow. So it was like, he was kind of paving the way of how much interest there was in this stuff. And so, yeah, looking back on what, there's a lot of things that have changed, maybe culturally, but there's still that whole fascination and uh, yeah. the prediction. Other one, Curtis Carnow, this lawyer, he was really big into VR and AR and what the implications were legally because he was a lawyer. Okay. So one of them was like, let's say you're uh, training uh, on power plant equipment, nuclear power plant equipment. And since you can't run it on the real one, you're training, there's, there's all these simulators. Mm-hmm. But what happens if there's an inadvertent mistake in the training simulator, and the training simulator teaches you the wrong maneuver mm. in, in an, an emergency? Mm-hmm. Is it the program author? Is the company that delivered the software? Is the com- you know, where's the liability? The other one was if you have agents 
back then the agents were going to be a big thing. And agents are going to go out into the internet and do things on your behalf. Mm. So while you're sleeping, your agent is scouring the internet and getting you the best price for your favorite book or shoes or something, mm. or booking tickets. And your agent might interact with other people's agents and dynamically you'll have 50 agents all that time that happen to want to buy those shoes and they get a group bulk purchase and you'd have all these things with agents. But then the idea was, who's liable if the agent makes a mistake? Mm. And uh, we don't have question, answers to those questions today, really. Yeah. And so 30 years later, you can see we're still struggling yeah. with the ideas. What's the closest DEF CON ever came to not happening? When, when was, the close, when, was there ever an existential threat to DEF CON? Other than, I guess the pandemic might be one. What's Pan the pandemic was pretty bad. If, if I wasn't a compulsive like, saver, like trying to always think long term, and I think that's the difference between corporate America or having to plan for the next quarter versus having yeah. to plan for years in advance yeah. is that um, luckily I'd saved enough to see us through the pandemic. So you're right, if, if I didn't have that weird compulsive like need to have reserves just in case, we wouldn't have survived. So that was, that was cool, very super stressful, but I'm, I'm now in hindsight glad to be validated that my paranoia had a little bit of you know something underneath it. Yeah. The other thing with DEF CON is you never know when you're gonna be sued. We've been sued over the years. And so, well, you need a war chest for that because mm -hmm. lawyers need money. And so that was the other thing. It's like if you had enough reserves, you knew you could survive putting a researcher on stage that might trigger some lawsuit. So it also equaled freedom for the com conference to have presenters. And by not having sponsors, it's very hard to blackmail us by trying to <laughs> right. get some sponsors to yeah. intimidate us. Or, so outside of that, the financial zone I'm trying to think. We've had some pretty big screw-ups with like badges missing, equipment stolen. But I think the biggest one was always we might get shut down in mid-conference. And there was a year, <laughs> there was a year, that's right. We were at the Monte Carlo. That was a pretty terrible year. So we're at the Monte Carlo and um, same thing, new hotel. Didn't know what to make of us. We were like the first conference that the sales team booked not really knowing. They're just excited to book a conference for its new sure. property. And then they catch on. <laughs> and then we start getting calls from the sales team like, hey, what, you know, what's going on? And the vice president wants to understand. And the you know, hotel manager. And then that gets to the show. And the week of the show, our sales team that had been supporting us, they're all on vacation. They're oh. like, peace out, you know, while this is going on. And we're at the show. And things were kind of rocky with the communications we'd been getting from the from the hotel and I'm sitting down the night before the conference is happening and there's um, some guys from New York from the 2600 scene Emmanuel Goldstein actually the editor of 2600 okay. there and we're we're all talking and this one phone freak here guy's like yeah you know if the hotel gives you trouble um, just let me know I'm in their phone PBX and I'll shut down the phone system <laughs> I'm like okay um, well <laughs> So far, things are going pretty well, so I'll just let you know. But good, good <laughs> right. to know. Right. Well, not to be undone. Somebody says, like, okay, cool. But if you're not getting the answers you like, we're in the power system in the surrounding area. So if they give you trouble, just let me know, and I'll shut down this oh my block's God. power, and we'll just turn off power to the casino. Oh, my God. I'm like, great, fantastic, good to know. Yeah, so if there's a giant emergency, I'll let you know. <laughs> You know, and it was like, right, totally. I forget about that. You know, just move on. We're doing the conference. Well, 
back then, DEF CON was a little bit more crazy, a little bit more misogynistic, a little bit, but there's always a group of like foreigners and some locals, and they would always um, have stripper con. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. and that eventually, that went away a couple years later. So what was going on that we didn't realize was that there's all these very specific rules on what you can and can't do as a stripper. Okay. There's certain moves that are illegal. <laughs> there's certain things you can't do, lewd things you can't, okay. you know. So it was all very, like, performative. But if you crossed any line for a certain nudity or whatever, that was not really a performance anymore. That was mm. something else. Mm. And then you'd be... So what they didn't realize, nobody realized, is they'd figured out where... The hotel had figured out where StripperCon was going on. They'd installed hidden cameras in this roof. Oh they'd lined the back hallway with... with police or their own casino police and they were waiting for the strippers to do something wrong oh, wow and they're just queued up ready oh to go God. and so i'm wandering around the space waiting the next day the conference was starting so i'm wandering around the space and i see all these people in one of the closed off conference rooms that nobody's supposed to be in so i go in like hey what is what is going on and they're like <laughs> so i go in and they had all these air some of these air walls were half up and i'm looking over them like oh, there's a stripper con happening in the middle of my hotel space. Like, how fantastic. You know, just what I need. And I look over to my right, and there's a guy with a huge camera on his shoulder. It's like some international press oh who figured this out, and he's set up, and he's recording it. And we were perfectly lined up watching this. And all of a sudden, she must have done some move that was not approved because she spins around on her back, twirls around in some maneuver, and immediately... Between her legs, as you're looking down, the doors open up and all the, oh all the feds or law enforcement, whoever, all starts streaming in. Oh, my God. And the guy with the camera is perfectly lined up. Got <laughs> this beautiful shot of all this thing like a movie. And you can see this happening. And he just starts stepping back <laughs> further and further. And I turn around like, I'm gone. Oh, wow. So I leave. Well, the girls only know that they were hired by DEF CON. Oh, God. Which they weren't hired by us. They're by some randos that were... Right. But, but they don't know any better. They sure. just know they're... So now, Las Vegas PD, hotel, everybody's looking for me. Oh, God. And so I'm on stage now. No, I'm sorry. I misspoke. It was the... must have been Friday night because I had to go be on Hacker Jeopardy. So I'm on stage at Hacker Jeopardy. And all of a sudden, all my goons come running in because we've been monitoring the hotel radio frequency... And so we know what the hotel's been up to. Sure. And all of a sudden, it's like, go find Jeff. So they swarm around me, ensconce me. They're listening to the radios. They have pro, we have people everywhere. We know where the security teams are roaming, and we dodge it like a video game and you know, hide in the barrel. And, you know, and we make it to a hotel room. Now I'm in the hotel room, and we're trying to figure out how bad is it, like what's going on. So we've got people talking to the hotel. I'm just chilling out in this hotel room over at... Uh, Gosh, what was it? The Flamingo, looking over at Monte Carlo, and we're doing you know radio because a line of sight sort of between the two hotels. And you're like, okay, it's not so bad, but if it gets bad, we'll smuggle you out in a car to like Northern Nevada, and you can fly home there. You don't want to go to the airport if they're looking for you. We're making all these crazy oh contingency God. plans, and there's like a whole operation. And I'm looking out the window, and all of a sudden, the power goes out at the hotel. <laughs> oh no! Like the whole block goes dark. I'm like, holy shit! And they're like, okay, we'll put you in the trunk of the car, you know, and like, we've got a plan, let's do this, you know. <laughs> oh, my 
my God. So what, what, what happened? And so we're like, well, it's like it's 2 o'clock in the morning now. And we're pretty fucking stressed out. Let's just, they don't know where we are. Let's go to sleep. And in the morning, we'll just see how bad it is. And then we'll decide. Okay. So we wake up in the morning and everything's fine. <laughs> the lights are on. Everything's okay. Everything's fine at the hotel. Huh. Like, so what happened was random power outage. Oh, no way. <laughs> Completely random. And so I go back to the guy and I'm like, what the fuck? Did you? And he's like, oh, I can't do that. I was just fucking with you. <laughs> and he just didn't want to be outdone by the guy who said he was in the phone system. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. And it's just, but the, oh, it was like so stressful. Turns out like the, the, the company that had the strippers talked to the people. I mean, right. you know, and it all got figured out on the back end and everything was fine. But for that moment of chaos, oh it looked like it was a world ending. Yeah. So that is a great story. <laughs> it was epic. Oh my god! So you can imagine after that, we made absolutely sure no strip con. We're not, you know, like if somebody's yes. going to do it, it's not going to be in our space. It's not going to be in our, you know, we can't have the liability. You're not, not our deal. But well, that actually segues perfectly to the next question. That is, for whatever reason, well, for obvious reasons, maybe DefCon is like a place for hijinks. Like, what is yeah. it about this conference in particular that just brings on the shenanigans? I think in the early years, especially during. Um, so it got pretty destructive. DEF CON 1 was fine. DEF CON 2, I think the word of mouth spread. And DEF CON 2 was kind of a little hijinksy, but it was an influx of younger people coming in from California on road trips to Vegas. And uh, by DEF CON 3, though, we were seriously thinking, like, is there a future for this? Because it's, it got, there's a crew that was kind of just, they'd grab the microphones, they'd do things, they'd break into things at night, they would mm. damage the bar equipment. They were just kind of pillaging. And everything's expensive in a hotel. And it was like, well, if this is how chaotic and kind of destructive this community can get, then it's self-limiting and mm. you can't really. And so we're going to give it one more try at DEF CON 4. And for whatever reason, I don't know how, but that element kind of got suppressed maybe by other people in the community or they grew up or something changed. But the tone really changed between 3 and 4. And then we didn't have that problem again. Hmm. But it was really scary around DEF CON 3. And so then I think we didn't have all the staff to stop everybody from doing something. Mm. So there's a certain level of like, you'll just get away with it because we can't do anything about it. Yeah. And then there's also a certain level of out, outdoing each other, right? Yeah. Um, you know, making a funny sticker that made fun of another hacking group, doing something online. Like there was one group that worked for years, this is around DEF CON 7 or 6 or 7, Alexis Park days. This guy K2, this super hacker guy. There have been multiple K2s, but this was the, the real dude, right? The okay. real K2. And he'd done research, and he found the flaw in the FTP D daemon, and he'd been camping on that for like six months, waiting to deface the DEF CON website. So when he defaced it at the con, it was all tongue-in-cheek, kind of fun yeah. defacement, right? Yeah. And so, every, so we could take a punch, right? And we were cool with it. And it just, I, I think we don't take ourselves that seriously. DEF CON means a lot of things to a lot of people, and I think everybody has kind of their own individual feel for what it means, but I'm curious, what, are, what is it, after all this time, what does it mean to you personally? Like, what is, when you think back on DEF CON, like, what is the real meaning of all of this to you? That's a good question. I think it's meant different things to me over the years. Sure. Right. So, in the early years, before the whole .com, before everything, it was sort of like freedom in the sense that I had created something, and then other people had come to it and validated that it was fun. But you still had to do everything else in life, 
right? It was, it was like a side adventure um, that was enjoyable. And then over the years, we saw there's something here, and I started Black Hat. And then Black Hat really started to take off, and then it's like, oh, this could be a job. This could be like a career. And I remember thinking that I was working, uh, doing pen testing, professional services for a company at the time called uh, Secure Computing Corporation in 97, 98, 99, for, you know, for a while. But in the early years there, by, by 99, I think, it was getting to the point where I was making almost as much money with Black Hat, the company was, as my salary at hmm. Secure Computing. Mm -hmm. And I just remember thinking, if I can get 87 more people to pay to come to Black Hat, that would be equal to the total, my salary, right? So I'm going to not work on my day job anymore. I'm going to leave the company, and I'm going to spend a whole year trying to get 87 more people. And it, and it took off, and then it became, it went from this passion project on the side to a business, right? So then Black Hat meant a business. And DEF CON was always like the supporting character, right? The split personalities of the two. Right. And then, uh, and then I ended up selling Black Hat because the liability just got too great for me. I was not comfortable with that total amount of liability. Mm. Because what happens in, warning, this is insider conference stuff, but as you get larger, you know, you have to sign contracts further and further in advance because the yeah. space is larger. So yeah. you have to commit to it sooner. So you're signing three, four years in advance. So if you're going to burn out, and there is a lot of burnout, if you're going to burn out, you have to know you're burning out three years in advance. <laughs> or you have to sell the business. Yeah. And let's say you're, you're going to burn out and you're like, okay, three years from now, I'm not going to do it anymore. Well, you still are growing the business for the next three years because you want to make as much money as possible. And every year if you're growing, it costs more the next year to do the show. It's more space, more rental, more speakers, inflation, whatever it is. It just, yeah, you made a lot of money this year, but guess what? Everything is more expensive next year. Hotel commitments, food, yeah. whatever. <clears throat> so you're always playing catch up. So you would get the, the one year you'd have your big cash out would be the final year that you walk away from the business because then you don't have to pay for the final year. Yeah. So, so you know you've built up this conference, you spent all this time and energy, and then you, you get one year of profit, and then you walk away. Or you sell it, and then you can get multiple years, essentially, mm. of profit. Mm. So what are you going to do? So you, then now you have to find a buyer. But your conference is never built to be bought, so you have to figure out how, how does that even work, and yeah. so on and so forth. And then later, after that, I think it dawned, it became really clear that the hacking scene, here to stay, international, by that time, there were many, many competing alternative hacking conferences, mm -hmm. right? We, when I started, I think I said there's like maybe four, maybe, maybe we were the fifth. Now there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And yeah. when we had Black Hat in those early days, we were looking at who the competitors were. And at one point we stopped counting it, like I think it was 220. Oh my God. And that's just, it was in the US. Wow. And now there's more than a thousand. And so, so you know it's here to stay, and now it's a thing, and you've sort of shown the way and created a blueprint for other people to create. And now that we had our DEF CON 20, our big 20th anniversary, and that was such an event. I think now, I think DEF CON is community. It was hacking, it was exploration, it was pissing off the man with like access control system hacks and lock picking hacks, and you know, everything that originally you weren't supposed to hack, cell phone hacks were really big. But the enduring thing I keep going back on is the fun I had with my friends. 
the things we did together, the friendships I still have 30 years later from people I met at the very first DEF CON. And I've kind of forgotten some of the, the technical hacks, right? That was maybe the excuse and the organizing reason we were there, but the enduring legacy for me has been the friendships in the community. And I don't know if I'm getting altruistic or I'm getting too far away from the technology, but we always try to design DEF CON as half technical, half social. Yeah, and I think if you go too far in either direction, you kind of lose your your reason. Well, just as as one attendee, I can tell you that you've succeeded because I, I I came. I've always wanted to come just because it was kind of this nebulous. You know, everyone goes an interested security has to go to Def, uh, DefCon once, and I'm like, but after I came last year, the community was so huge, and and, and the vibe and things were just. I'd and last year was a small year, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I actually COVID liked year. it. It was like DEF CON light for me. So my yeah. introduction was like not quite, easy. Not quite as You're crazy. You're in easy yeah. mode, yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm so sold. And it, it, this is unlike any other conference I've ever been to. So the vibe is, is exactly as you described. And the community is huge. It's what, a, what an amazing group of craftspeople that get together every year and just have a good time. And it all seems to like coalesce perfectly. I think you know, what I've learned is um, you lead by example, or you, you try to and you try to gather around you good people with similar vision because people respond, right? So if you have people around you that play fast and loose with the rules or they're you know, mean to their staff or something, then you create that kind of a culture. And so when you hear these stories about how miserable it was at Apple under Jobs because he was, or how Bill Gates would yell at you know, engineers for having stupid ideas, like, wow, what a luxury that you can do that. Like, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm excited that people are coming and helping and wanting to do this thing. I'm not, you know, it's really forced me to mature, I think, or think of how you're going to coordinate the chaos. Because you can't really do it with a stick. Yeah. Right? And you're not, there's not enough money to pay people, right? So they're doing it because they believe in it. And when you're in the hopes and dreams business, right, you have to deliver and you can't have two standards for yourself and everybody else. And so that's a little uncomfortable knowing that at any moment, if you do something terribly wrong, everybody might abandon ship, right? Yeah. It's not like Elon Musk, well, but his stock's doing well, <laughs> right? I'm making money with him despite him being, you know, um, that doesn't work in this, in this industry. And, uh, and the other thing is, uh, there's no book you can buy on how to run a conference or how any of the community works. Mm -hmm. And uh, before I was doing this, at DEF CON 1, I met an entertainment lawyer who worked at uh, Capitol Records. And I was going to law school at the time, and I thought I wanted to be in entertainment. I had a roommate, when I started DEF CON, my roommate at the time was a music producer. And I was like, that's super cool. I mean, yeah. I don't have the musical skills that you have, but maybe I can do this from the legal side, or maybe mm -hmm. I can do this from a different, mm -hmm. you know. And he's like, great, you should uh, intern for us. So I ended up interning at Capitol Records, legal department, Hollywood and Vine. I'm going through the records, the Tina Turner, the Beatles, oh, wow. whatever. I get to read everything and seeing how the music industry works. And, and I realized that, um, and they're like, yeah, if you're into music, you read this book. It's called... Um, I think it was called This Business of Music. Okay. And there weren't, back then, there weren't 20 books on that industry. There's one. But if you read that, that was the Bible of hmm. 
the music industry. And I was looking, well, now let's learn about the conference business. <laughs> There's no such books. Mm. And you quickly realize that every year, it's like starting from scratch in the sense that there's different unions with different contracts. Each hotel has a different contract. The contracts get renegotiated and the way things work change, change year after year. It's not in the interest of the unions or the hotel necessarily to give you a book on how any of it works. There's no PDF to learn on how does anything work. And uh, we had to figure it out year after year. And, and that kind of... That kind of constant reinvention forced us to be highly adaptable. And when we got big enough and we started having uh, hotel coordinators and we'd hire um, a conference planner to help us translate what we need to coordinate with a hotel, they're all mystified. They're like, this doesn't work. I mean, <laughs> everything you've done, I've been in this industry you know, 20 years, this is not, not how it works. Totally amazed that you're pulling this off. Like, right, this is not how it happens. And even decades later, we went to hire someone this year, and they're like, oh, this, this doesn't make sense to me. UNLV here in town is one of the only places in the United States where you can get a master's in conference planning because it's such a conference town. I think you can even get a PhD. Oh, wow. And so every once in a while, they'd send students over uh-huh. to Black Hat or somebody to DEF CON because they're trying to figure out, like, how does it actually work? Yeah, yeah. Because it's not how it's supposed to. And uh, when you're so close to it like us, you don't realize what you're doing is different. It's just what you're doing. So along the way, we've kind of disrupted or changed things because normally community is around a trade association. And the trade association controls the conference and the sponsors. And there's not like spontaneous, you know, dart throwing association. You'd think (laughs) there would be, but there's not. Railroad singlemen. There's, I mean, every kind of association you can think of. But we were truly organic and that, that was weird. All right, so you're in maybe the position of being uh, a benevolent dictator, and you've had, you've had the ability to shape this and kind of keep it as your baby all this time. So as you're bringing people, you, you say you're bringing people around you that help you this, because you can't obviously at this point do it all yourself. What do you look for in people when you're like trying to decide who to hire and how to put what positions? Like what qualities are you, have you gotten to the point where you've got a Jeff sense, a DEF CON sense of somebody, like you're going to be a perfect fit yeah, for this? Yeah, I, I kind of, well, you know how you have like sort of a personal radar and when you meet somebody the first time or a couple times, your radar is like, yeah, yeah, they're pretty compatible or maybe they're overly social or not social enough. Or you, you, Well, every once in a while I run into people where my radar doesn't work. They've got some stealth technology. It's like they're jamming my radar. And I don't know if they're good mm-hmm. and I don't know if they're bad. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And when I get those vibes, I steer clear of those people. And then in hindsight, I go back years later sometimes and I was like, hey, whatever happened to that, that person? Like, was did they turn out to be good or bad? And about half the time they turn out to be good, and about half the time they turn out to be bad. And so, so I've missed out some opportunities to have some friendship with people that jammed my radar. But on the other hand, I've avoided some other problems. And so it's really taught me to like, introspect on how do I evaluate people, especially in this community where there's a lot of people that are on the spectrum, oh, sure. right? Yeah. Like, I'm sure I am somewhere, I must be. <laughs> At least I'm on the procrastination spectrum somewhere or the can't go to sleep at night spectrum. Yeah. And so the other thing is you can't be terribly choosy on who you're hiring because you're not hiring them a lot. You know, right. people who run all these departments, they're, they're doing this from the, for the love. Yeah. And so then it's really more about, well, how much do they love the community? Like, have they made hard decisions to have to kick someone out that's misbehaving? Or they always just want to make people happy and mm-hmm. they've always never had to make the hard decision 
And so therefore they might be great in a supporting role, but they can't be in a leading role because at some point you have to make hard decisions, yeah. which is you know unfortunate. And so the other thing is we sort of have this litmus test is, well, if you've been around a number of years, chances are you'll be around for more years. And so with that staying power shows commitment. Mm. And so that's kind of, a, and the people that just kind of want to associate and get the glow of DEF CON and claim that they have all this mm. credibility, they don't last very long. Because what they want is they want to get something kind of quickly. Right. You know, and we've kind of organized over the years to identify those people and move them along because we want the longevity. We don't want the... Right. All right, let, let's look to the future. So where does DEF CON go from here? Where do you see this going in the next decade? So, and what are your hopes for it? Yeah, we've constantly always been thinking, like, so it would be a very easy, like maybe DEF CON 10, 11, 12, when the things are really, like the whole scene was just exploding, where we could have sort of like franchised and done multiple DEF CONs. Um, people are always asking us to do a DEF CON in my country, do it in Mexico, do it in Canada, do it in wherever, Paris. And, um, and we, that might have been a brilliant move, but we didn't. We, we, this was our one thing, partially because you can't rally everybody to travel all over the world, mm. but you could probably build an equivalent community in, in France that would come and help run. But for whatever reason, we didn't. I was trying Black Hat. That was my side thing. It was, I was not messing with DEF CON. I was trying to keep yeah. that more true. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of dot-com money sloshing around, and it was just a lot of focus to try to not lose whatever we had created. Now, we did try some new stuff pre-pandemic. We did a conference in, what was it? We did, we did two conferences, mini conferences, within the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. Hmm. So they liked our community, and we liked their community. And um, they think of themselves as storytellers. Storytellers with cameras. Storytellers with, you know, writing scripts. But mm. it's essentially everything storytelling. So their conference really focuses around humans and storytelling, which mm. is interesting. Yeah. Not kind of what I expected. And I was an advisor for the Mr. Robot TV show. Yep. And they were going to have some, something around Mr. Robot. They wanted to sponsor something. And so they ended up sponsoring the... DEF CON came to Tribeca and we had a Mr. Robot panel and it was really interesting. The Fusion, we did that two years and that kind of like, well, we, maybe we can take parts of DEF CON and put it on the road or do something different. And then we did a, uh, a DEF CON in China, in Beijing. And uh, it took us years to figure out how to even think about approaching that and which partner to pick. Because a lot of people from China and a lot of hackers would come to the US and they're like, oh, you should do it do it back. Right. It's like, well, we don't know. It's like, oh, my company would sponsor, or my company would help you, or we can find you ways. And so there was enough energy there that there probably was a way. And what we didn't want to do is an invade another country and squash their local scene. Uh, sure. So yeah. I'd love to do a DEF CON in Berlin. We're not doing that. There's too many good conferences in Berlin. We're not going to be the... So we were looking at the whole world, like, well, what's left? Where would we not really come in and disrupt the local scene? And we're like, well, there's, there's hacking conferences in China, but there's not any foreign, really, hacking conferences. So, okay, so we could probably do that, and it wouldn't be uh, maybe India at the time. So we tried that, and then COVID hit, you know, and just as we we're figuring out their, their culture and their, their scene, super hungry, super excited, super energized, like, super hackers, and it reminded me of DEF CON like 15 years earlier. Mm. They're just like us, just behind the curve, yeah. because it, it hit for them, the technology right. and the 
community hit a little bit later for them. But now with the, the pandemic shutdown, I don't think we're going to go back for, hmm. I don't think we can go back until at least 2025, maybe. And who knows what the world looked like then. So, so I would like something like that to be in the future, some other adventure, but I don't know what's possible now. And so um, the only other thing we're trying this year is we've added for the first time DEF CON training. So on Monday, Tuesday, after the conference, we're trying paid trainings. Hmm. And uh, because essentially every conference has training and we don't. And so we wanted to do it differently. And so we came up with a very, and like I said, I don't, I don't like, uh, I like simplifying things where I can. So we're going to just split the money 50-50 with the trainers. And that's unusual. Most trainers normally get about 35 or maybe, maybe okay. 40%. But for us, it's easy. It's 50-50. We're not really necessarily doing it to try to make money. We're doing it because we have the space, we have the platform, we have the trainers. Yeah. And if it helps us a little bit, great. But it just seems like a natural evolution. People ask for it. And so if we're going to do it, we want to do it differently. So that's about the only thing. We've thought of podcasts and video casts. And, but a lot of people do them really well. And again, we don't want to try to mm. compete, right? We want to give the other community their space yeah. and we don't want to so um, so instead we just want to focus on being like we introduced the first sort of code of conduct for hacking conferences yeah. we introduced the first transparency yeah. report um, we want to really focus on on trying to not necessarily be first but try to set a standard and then hopefully people imitate us and if we see something we'll imitate them but we're always kind of you're trying to evolve. And um, as InfoSec conferences have gotten so prevalent and the hacking conferences have sort of declined, what's happened is, um, especially in the COVID era, to survive, you, you need sponsors. Because we have a lot of scale and I saved a lot and I, I could survive, but a lot of other people don't. Yeah. So you take sponsors and now you, you have to kind of appeal to the sponsor's interests, which are usually product oriented. Right. Um, and so then you end up sort of looking like a InfoSec conference. Yeah. Which is fine. There's, that's where your career is. That's where you make money. But that means there's sort of less conferences that look like hacking conferences. And so over the last six, seven years, we've been really applying this sort of filter of, well, yes, but is it hacker? That's a great submission. It could be a white paper. Or that's a great submission. That's an InfoSec talk. And boy, if we were an InfoSec conference, we'd take that talk in a second. But we're not. So go someplace else to that audience. Um, and so, yeah, it makes me a little bit sad that you have to turn away good talks, but on the other hand, you, you got to kind of know what your core identity is. And, and for us, the, the first hurdle you must jump over it is yes, but is it hacker? And if yeah. it is, great. Well, there was, there was actually a question I skipped that I'll bring, I'll come back to you. Have there, have there been, you've had some great speakers, obviously, over the years. Um, and that one general was a big one. <laughs> oh. oh, General Hayden? <laughs> yeah. Or uh, I think we had Alexander. Alexander, Alexander yeah. Have there been anybody that you've been dying to get here that you just, for some, whatever reason, I've been wanting William Gibson since like DEF CON 3 or something. I mean, since the early days. And uh, to the point that we, uh, I called them up. I, I found every William Gibson in Canada and I called them all because I didn't know which one was what. And I, I, I got this guy in, uh, in Vancouver that I'm certain was him <laughs> after the fact, but he gamed me. And I didn't realize I actually got oh, the, the William Gibson until after the fact. I said, like, oh, damn. <laughs> like, he clearly doesn't want to because he, you know, maneuvered me off the phone. Um, one time we were really trying to get uh, 
John Perry Barlow hmm. because we were a huge fan. He helped found the EFF, the Electronic Frontier yes. Foundation. He had this sort of like online bill of rights. He was just doing a lot of writing and thinking about what the internet could be. It was this formative embryonic era and that's kind of what we were trying to, so we kind of thought the same and so we were trying to get it. But yeah. he was in super demand and we were mm. some teeny rinky dink little conference. He died recently too, didn't and he? And he passed away, right? And, and I got to meet him years later, okay. which is a funny story. And, and uh, so I end up <clears throat> hacking his voicemail box, <laughs> his uh, answering machine. Because I'm trying to leave him a message, like, hey, we want to really invite you. And his voice machine was always full. You'd hear his blur, beep, sorry, voicemail, but, you know, yeah, full. Right. It's like, oh, my, there's no way, how, he, this dude never deletes his messages. <laughs> how am I ever going to, and um, so, so I, I, got, I hacked, I guessed, his voicemail box security code. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I can't delete his messages. Because who knows, it could be really important. Right. So I delete his greeting. <laughs> and he can record a new greeting. And that was enough space to... Yeah. And so I changed the greeting like, hey, John, sorry oh. for doing this. You know, I need to... I'm trying to connect with you. Yeah, I really want to do it. So like everybody is calling the voicemail box. That's fun. <laughs> to catch on is hearing this invitation to DEF CON, right? <laughs> yeah. Classic. So never heard from him. Shocker, right? <laughs> Years later, I'm in Madrid for like the anniversary of the Madrid train bombings. Oh. And there's this international conference where they're trying to address radicalization and online yeah. polar, you know, all this stuff. And he's one of the members. And, and we end up, we're talking, we're on the bus together and we hit it off and we're having a great time. And I tell him that story and he laughs about it. And oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I didn't know what to make of it. And when we're done, he... Uh, I was like, you don't want to stay in touch. He's like, okay, yeah, let me give you my phone number. And it's like, no, no, I've already hacked your phone. I've dropped over Bluetooth my contact details in your phone. Because, <laughs> and he's like, okay, thanks. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because there was this, uh, this Bluetooth hacking tool that Major Malfunction, who, who's here, runs our QM. He had done a lot of work on Bluetooth. And there's a, a basically a vulnerability on Nokia's where you could, you didn't have to accept, you could just drop contact details on people <laughs> and if they had things misconfigured you could read their contact details uh -huh. right so i didn't want to read his contact sure. details right but i just kind of wanted to air oh, equivalent of like air dropping in my deets on him and so it was yeah so he was really he was really cool about it but there's been a few people like that we got um neil stevenson snow crash yeah super iconic transformative book for a lot of people yeah so we get a hold of him my friend dune gets a hold of him and he was really introverted. He's like, man, yeah, I might come, but I'm not going to get on stage. Like, mm. I'll hang out at the back of the room hmm. and watch. Interesting. You know, but I'm not. Well, years later, now he's a pro. He's on stage everywhere. Everything's great. So it's really cool to see people who have evolved uh -huh. and they've, you know, overcome their fears. And now he's just, you know, and he's a, he's a really deep thinker and, you know, great guy. Wish we could have had him, you know, in those early, early years. Right. So, you know, there's a couple of misfires like that where you... I didn't realize that, you know, you can just ask people. <laughs> they were so far away up and on a pedestal that you didn't realize that they might be honored to come and hang out with this new crazy community that was forming. But, you know, you're, you're intimidated by them. And so it's funny to hear you say that. Yeah. Oh, well, dude, this is fantastic. Thanks a lot for doing this again. It's yeah. Give me your time. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks All for right. having me, man. Take care. Okay.
Thanks again to Jeff. I, I so much enjoyed talking to him. He's got some great stories. You, you can tell that we were, honestly, I was, I kind of lost myself a couple times in the interview, just because the stories, I just kept wanting to ask him questions. Some of the questions I asked him were not on my list of questions uh, because he just, as he said stuff, I decided I had to follow up on some things. And there are several questions that were on my list that I never had a chance to ask. We just, we didn't have time. So someday we'll get back to those. And if I'm lucky, maybe next year I'll get a chance to interview him again. So uh, I promised I'd tidy up a few references he made just in case you, you missed them. He talked about William Gibson, and uh, he is the author of several cyberpunk books. In fact, I think some people might say he kind of pioneered that genre. Uh, Neuromancer being the most important one, one that I have been dying to read for years and still haven't. I feel horrible that I haven't. It's on my list, but that's who he is. Jeff mentioned several things kind of in passing about hacker history. I found a really interesting website from Kaspersky, actually, that uh, it's called A Brief History of Hacking. And it's got a, a really nice kind of a timeline of computers and hacking going all the way back, uh, including a link to that Satan tool that he talked about. But I've got a link to that in the show notes as well, if you want to, if you want to jump to that network analyzing tool. But there's some documentaries I'd like to recommend you look at if you're at all interested in hackers and hacker history. Uh, first of all, check out DEF CON's documentary. It was done for DEF CON 20, I believe. It's uh, on YouTube on for free. You can check it out. It's a little over an hour, and a, uh, maybe hour and a half. Uh, but there's two other ones that I remember watching and enjoying if you want to learn more about hackers. One is called Zero Days, and I, that was mostly focused on the malware called Stuxnet that is widely attributed to the United States and Israel that was used to destroy some nuclear centrifuges in Iran to try to set back their nuclear program. Uh, it talks about more than that, as I recall, but that was kind of the focus. So that's an interesting one to watch. And then there's another one called Code 2600, again, that number 2600, which I'll explain in a second, about hackers and hacker culture. I seem to remember that one kind of almost having two parts, like like maybe the first part was uh, kind of about one thing, and then the second part was uh, takes a slightly different tack. But one of those two parts does talk about hacker history and stuff, which is fascinating. If you want to read instead of watch a documentary, you can read the seminal book, uh, Hackers by Stephen Levy. That's uh, that's widely regarded to be one of the most definitive books on the subject, and uh, one that I'm in the process of reading. And it's taken me a while. It's it's a long book, but that goes all the way back again to like just a, the beginning of computers and shows how that hacking and computers have gone hand in hand since their inception. If you're more into fiction than nonfiction, uh, the book Little Brother by Cory Doctorow is a good one. It's very short. It's an entertaining read, but it has a kind of a hacker vibe to it. But now let me explain this whole 2600 thing. So back in the older telephone days, uh, when long distance calls still cost money, and before we really had a full digital fabric for switching phone calls, a lot of stuff behind the scenes reacted to tones on the line. And if you remember your old push button telephones, uh, when you pushed a, one of the 10, well, one of the 12 buttons on the phone, it made a sound. And those sounds were actually two frequencies. It was called dual tone multi-frequencies. Every, it, it was an array of, of, of tones. Like the, the rows had, uh, each had their own tone and the columns each had their own tone. So when you pressed a button, it would play a dual tone of the row and column so that the far end could tell what button you were pressing. But there were other things behind the scenes that used tones as well. And Back in the day, the group of hackers that used their knowledge of these tones and things they could learn from these tones to, for example, make free long distance phone calls were called phone freakers. And that's P-H-R-E-A-K, freak. And one of the most famous ones was a hacker who went by the handle Captain Crunch. And 
so it turns out that there was an inter uh, what's the right technical term the, the the big companies that did the long distance networks when you were placing a, a long distance call if you played a certain tone and that tone at a certain frequency happened to be 2600 hertz 2600 cycles per second if you played a tone at that frequency which is perfectly audible to the human ear uh, it would reset the toll on the call and then you could follow that up with more digits and make another call but there would be no charge for that call so it was a way like you'd start out with maybe like a 1-800 number call that you'd make that would be free to you but now you're in the long distance network and if you play that tone it would disconnect the call and then it would allow you to place another call at no charge because there was no toll associated with the original call and Back in the 70s, cereal boxes back in the day used to come with little toys. You know, all the kids' cereals did anyway. And I used to love getting the toys. That was, you know, you always begged your parents to get the, the box of cereal that had the cool toy in it. And I actually used to love Captain Crunch, so I used to get these myself. I probably had this whistle at some point myself. But Captain Crunch at one point in the 70s came with this little bosun's whistle, you know, like a, something you might use on a ship. And turns out that it, if you covered one of the holes it would produce a 2600 hertz frequency pitch. And the, and the hacker who became known as Captain Crunch because of this figured out that with that whistle, he could use it to make toll-free long-distance calls. So that is the origin of 2600 and its relevance to hackerdom. Now, a further little tidbit on that, if you're curious and happen to have or have access to a 3D printer you can print that old Captain Crunch whistle, which I have done. I've got a 3D printer at home. I've printed one of these. And there's a link in the show notes. There's a great website called Thingiverse. And on Thingiverse, people post 3D images for free that you're allowed to download and print for yourself. And of course, because just about everything is on the internet these days, you can actually go and print yourself one of these Captain Crunch whistles. So that's a little fun extra exercise left to the interested listener. All right. Speaking of which, I imagine we may have some new listeners to the podcast because of the DEF CON connection here for people who may have just found me at, uh, from DEF CON. Uh, and if you're an old listener, you could probably tune out at this point. I just wanted to say a few things to somebody who might be new to the podcast. First of all, this is not the only thing I do. This all started with a book by the same name uh, that's, you know, privacy and security for regular everyday people, uh, you know, for dummies was taken. So <laughs> I had to come up with another name. And trust me, it's hard to come up with a, a clever name for a book. But now I'm stuck with it. So it's Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons is the book. And it, I called it that because one of the central analogies in the book is uh, a medieval castle and why that has so much to inform us about how we do cybersecurity today. And so I use a lot of analogies in the book, trying to explain a lot of these topics on how the internet works and how security works and encryption and all that stuff. So anyway, that started with the book and then it became a blog and a newsletter and eventually a podcast, which I've been doing for over five years now, I guess. So that's what I do. And every other week it goes back and forth. I'll do a news show uh, one week where I cover the latest privacy and security news to try to keep everybody up to date. Uh, and then I'll do an interview on the odd off week. So uh, if you're interested in that at all, check out some of the back episodes. If you go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, there's a link to the podcast there that kind of has some of the highlights, some of the maybe the bigger interviews that I've done over the years that you might want to jump right to and check some of those out. So I was a software engineer for many years, and, not, and then I retired. So, you know, this podcast and all this stuff does cost money. So I, I now have an account on Patreon so that people can contribute. And so I use the patronage from Patreon to, you know, to cover the bills and then, you know, pay for things like trips to DEF CON. So if you're interested in that, uh, my patrons get some 
extra bonus podcast content every week. Uh, we also have a private Discord group where we can chat with each other and, and even more. So anyway, if you go to patreon.com and search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, you'll find all the details there. So if you are a new listener, welcome. I hope you stick around and subscribe. And then for all of you, as always, until next week, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.